The Lord be with you. Today we begin a three-week series called Back to the Basics, and it's really about the heart of Waterstone. Today we're going to talk about neighboring, what motivates us to love our neighbors. Next week we're going to talk about radical generosity, and then in two weeks about life-giving community. So as we begin, let's read From John chapter 1, at the end of the scripture reading, the reader will say the word of the Lord, and we ask you to speak out, thanks be to God, as an acknowledgement that you are hearing and receiving God's voice into your life. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who, become, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of the Lord. The late writer David Foster Wallace was giving a commencement speech years ago, and he began with this parable. He said, there were two young fish swimming along, happy in their day, when uh, an older fish passed them, and as they passed, the older fish yelled out to the two younger fish, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish kept swimming right along until one of them stopped, looked at the other, and said, what the hell is water? The point of the parable is that the most essential realities often are the ones most difficult to see. And if we're not seeing them, we're just swimming. So how do we know if we're just swimming? One of the ways we know is by the gaps in our life. For instance, the gap between what we know and what we do. Now, we know every page of God's voice to us talks about loving our neighbors, or what we call neighboring. And uh, throughout the scriptures, there are places like Peter, when he says that God's not willing that any should perish. We know that you have never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. But, know and do, 
Does our checking account reflect that? Does our time management reflect that? Does our selective use of courage reflect that? No and do. Now the church helps us mind the gap and they step into it. And uh, usually they're on the knowledge side and they preach great sermons. Like 50 ways to love your neighbor. Put out the track, Jack. Fish on the car, Barb. Promise the joy, Roy. Get them set free. Don't need to discuss much. (laughs) Is knowledge the solution to help us close the gap between knowing and doing when it comes to loving our neighbors? I submit to you that it might be deeper than just having more knowledge about how to talk to our neighbors. I submit it might be 18 inches deeper and it has to do with our heart. What motivates us to love our neighbor ultimately is a heart condition. Why? It's the water we swim. We were made by a God in three persons who has lived in eternal community. We are made by love and for love, and the water we swim is love. We are not primarily motivated intellectually. We are not brains on a stick. We are creatures who are moved through this world by yearnings and desires and passions. We are what we love. John, the apostle, the apostle of love, who knew Jesus so well, put it this way. We love because he first loved us. The context there is about loving others. And if I could gently paraphrase it for our purposes this morning, we neighbor because he neighbored us. I submit to you that to the degree we sense God has neighbored us, we will then move towards our neighbor in love. So, how has God neighbored us? Four words from John 1.14. The word became flesh. Let's unpack that and understand and receive and be ravished by the idea that God has neighbored us. The word John is writing biculturally here. He is living in the Greco-Roman world. So that's one culture that he engages, and he's also a Jew. And so he's in, in the Jewish community, and so he uses a word to describe Jesus to both of these cultures. It's the word, you've heard of it, the Greek word logos. John is essentially writing that Jesus is the logic of God. So, the Greek or Roman world, and the Greeks would have understood logos in terms of their philosophers who used this word all the time. Philosophers like Heraclitus and the Stoics who said that the logos is the first cause of the universe. It's, it's the rational, integrative principle that helps explain the world, how we got here, and how everything works. They might have called it the higher power, the force of all, the first cause 
So the, the Greeks understood the logos to be the one who provides an explanation for everything and why we're here. The subversive piece of how John engages the word, though, is that John is writing and says, get this, that the logos is not a watertight argument that explains the world. The logos is not a polemic that explains first causes. No, the logos is a watertight person. That is subversive. John is saying that if you engage the Logos, this person, then you will not only get an explanation of what the world is and why we're here, but even more, you will get relationship with the person who made it, the God of the universe, who goes around inviting people with these kinds of massive statements in the Gospel of John. I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. I am the living bread. Come to me and you will never hunger again. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you'll live. How's the water? John engages the Greeks with the Logos, the maker of all things who's inviting you and I into relationship. And then John is reaching and neighboring to his own culture, the Jewish culture. And the Jews were also familiar with this word logos. In their worship services, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, they would sing the Psalms, and they would sing verses like this from Psalm 33, 6, by the logos of the Lord, the heavens and were made and their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. They understood the Logos to be the creator, that power that can speak and all the earth exists. What was scandalous, what was subversive to John's Jewish community is that the Logos became a person. And to the Jewish mind, the idea that the Lord, the maker of all things, was a person? Blasphemy. In fact, in the early church, this was the great struggle. Because the Jews were birthed out of, or I mean, the, the Christian movement was birthed out of the Jewish community. And the Jews especially had a struggle with the idea that the Lord could become a person, a man. And uh, there was a, 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 a cultish kind of movement within the early church called docetism. And docetism is from the Greek word docet, which means to seem. And what, what they were advocating was that, yes, he, Jesus was God. I mean, we saw him turn water into wine. We saw the lame walk. We saw demons come out of people. No question he was God, but I'm really struggling that he was a man. In fact, I don't think he was human. I think he was a phantom or a spirit. And for 300 years, the church wrestled this down, trying to unpack and give language and define the nature of Jesus. And it wasn't until the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, when after studying the apostles' teaching, that the language was nailed down and actually Jesus was finally defined and decided for us in the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, the language is very interesting, as you'll see. It talks about Jesus being fully God 
and fully man. 100% God and 100% man. That he is, and they coined a phrase or a word, incarnate. God in flesh. Now you may be thinking, what's the big deal? I mean, a 300-year argument? Why does this matter so much? Oh, you need to know this matters. Think with me. If Jesus is only human and not God, that means that even if he's sinless, according to God's economy and a moral economy, one life can save one life. One life can be laid down for another's life. It's just one for one if Jesus was human. Think about it the other way. If Jesus is God but not human, that means he can't lay down his life. He can't be killed. Why was it important that Jesus could be killed? In the verse, John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That literally means in the Greek to pitch a tent. Jesus pitched a tent among us. It's a recollection back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. What was the tabernacle? The place where human beings could meet God. And how did that happen in the tabernacle? When the priest would bring the blood of the lamb to the mercy seat, and the blood would be sprinkled, and in the shed blood of the lamb, there was forgiveness. Sins were covered. So it's important that Jesus be human so that he could be killed, so that he could be the lamb, so that through his blood, our sins could be washed away. That's why the language matters. Jesus is fully God and fully man, so that, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, he is the perfect mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, because he's God, just one drop of his blood, because it's divine, has the power to forgive the sins of all who will believe. And because he's fully human, he can be killed and offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. So I think it would be fitting for us not only to respect our spiritual forebearers who wrestled this down for us, but even more in a moment of worship to acknowledge the word, Jesus, fully God and fully man. Would you stand as we recite together the Nicene Creed? Aloud, together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you. The Word, fully God, fully man, the Word became flesh. How did God neighbor us? The Word became flesh. How's the water? It's about to get deeper. I want you to think with me about the Word became flesh. So as a result of the virgin birth, by the way, two words that could never be next to each other in a sentence, virgin birth, unless God was somehow involved. As a result of the virgin birth, Mary's maker became Mary's baby. The one who hung 10 billion trillion stars in their place and names them, that's 10 with 15 zeros, put skin on. The one who hung the sun in the center of our solar system, the sun, which puts per minute six billion quadrillion calories of energy per minute into our universe. He moved into the neighborhood. The one who exists in unapproachable light prepared for his entrance by living in nine months of darkness. The one who dwells invisibly with power that holds the world together became visible, barely, barely visible to the human eye by becoming a human embryo. The word became flesh. How's the water? Deeper. Caesar Augustus, arguably the most powerful person who has ever lived in terms of acreage and percentage of population that he owned. When Caesar Augustus ruled, the Logos was ruling the world from the womb. When Quirinius was governor of Syria, the one who juiced the sun with all those calories, the Logos, needed a diaper change because he couldn't control his bowels. When Herod the Great was the Tetrarch of Galilee, he built the temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world. In fact, scholars today believe that you could have actually seen this temple from outer space during the day because of the sunlight glinting off the roof. And into this magnificent temple of Herod comes the Logos being carried in the arms of his teenage parents. The theologians say this is God incarnate. What we need to hear is this is God neighboring you. 
How does God neighbor us? In at least two ways. First, what this means, the word became flesh, means that God is near. He is near. Christianity, unique from all other worldviews, sees a God who came down, a God who suffered, a God who experienced hunger and weariness and fatigue and sickness, a God who experienced betrayal and rejection and abuse, a God who experienced death. He is unlike any other God. I've had several personal physicians through the year, none better than one named Doug, who was actually an elder at Jan and I's previous church in New England. Doug was a phenomenal physician, mainly because of his bedside manner. He was patient, explained everything, gentle. He just had this knack for helping you feel not only that he knew what he was talking about, but then getting you to do really hard things. I asked Doug once, where'd you learn your bedside manner? Doug said, without hesitation, on the table. He went on to talk about during residency, the way a doctor learns empathy is they actually get on the table and other training doctors do bad things to them. (laughs) That's how a doctor learns empathy. My friends, There is no other God like the Christian God because he's the only God who has been on the table. Have you been betrayed? So has he. Are you broke? So is he. Are you lonely and isolated and discouraged? So was he. Are you facing death? So did he. Have you been pouring out your heart for something you need, you want, you're crying out to God again and again? So did he. He had a big prayer go unanswered in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. God has come near on the table with you. He's neighbored you. But there's more. Not only did God come near, but God has come down. Down. Philippians chapter two says that Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus came to die the death we should have died for our sins. He came to wash away our sins and give us forgiveness and cleansing. But he also came as a human to live the life we should have lived. He was always obedient, always right, always pure, always true. And that life is gifted to us when we trust Christ. And so when the Father looks at us, he sees our sins forgiven. He died the death we should have died. And he sees our life having the fitness for heaven. He lived the life we should have lived. All of that is given to us. Jesus came all the way to the cross to give us his life and his death. Why? So that he could take us home. Read an interesting book not long ago called uh, Mortal Lessons, The Art of Surgery. And one of the stories in this book is uh, about 
how this surgeon, Richard Selzer, had to, uh, when taking a tumor out of a young wife's face, had to cut one of the nerves that controlled the muscles around her mouth, and it left her smile droopy uh, from, from that point on. And he writes about having to go into the room after the surgery and meet with this woman and her husband. Here it is in his words. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of her facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As a surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he with his, with his wry mouth, who, who gaze and touch each other so generously? The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Once upon a time, the God who bent down and took a handful of dust to breathe life into it stooped down again, and this time it was himself that he reshaped in order to kiss a disfigured earth with his grace and to breathe new hope into the life of his beloved. He showed us in that moment that it is not just the staggering height of God that displays his grandeur. It is how far he is willing to bend down that fully displays his glory. A baby, embraceable, accessible, killable. The word became flesh. My friends, to the degree that we see every day as Christmas, word became flesh. And that ravishes our heart is the degree you will move toward your neighbors in love.
So what is this neighboring business anyhow? Three things. When we say neighbor, we mean pray. Do you know the names of all the neighbors living around you? Find them out, write them on your fridge, pray for them each day, pray for them at the dinner table, pray for them that God will prosper them, will favor them, and pray that they know the light of the world. And then as you pray, it's interesting, hearts follow where you pray. You will begin to think about them. You will begin to engage them. Uh, One of our elders coined this phrase called the, the neighbor run. At Waterstone, we want you to do the neighbor run. That is this. Whenever you're outside and you see a neighbor out, you drop what you're doing and run to them. Now, not in like a stalky kind of way, but in a way that says to them, to them, I must matter to them because they always talk to me and are annoying. Do your neighbors know that you know you've never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God? You pray, you engage, and then you choose your moments of life courage and you invite them. You invite Jesus into a conversation or The goal of the neighboring process at Waterstone is you invite them to the Alpha Course. Now, the Alpha Course, it's it's a course, but it's really the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts and you ask yourself, how did God launch the church? Three main things. They ate together. There's food. At Alpha, you show up at 6.30, you get a home-cooked meal by many of you in our congregation, a home-cooked meal. Uh, If you haven't done this, try it sometime. Read through any gospel or all the gospels at once and, and discern how much of Jesus' talking and teaching occurred around food. Food opens hearts. So you you invite someone to Alpha, they're going to get a good meal, you're going to sit around them for eight weeks, and you're going to get to know them. And then the second part is the the Apostles' Doctrine was what launched the early church. In Alpha, you watch this world-class, professionally produced uh, short film that talks about these questions. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? Who's the Holy Spirit? How do we pray? What's the Bible? All these classic questions of the Christian worldview. Those are the films that you watch, and they're very good and very entertaining. And then, lastly, you break into small groups of five or six other people, creating a safe environment led by a trained facilitator who says, now, you can ask any question about God, the universe, or other things. No question is out of bounds. We're all seekers. What do you want to talk about? That's Alpha. And we're asking you, who are you going to invite? Take a look.
I'd like you to take just a few moments in this quiet. Think about a neighbor that you could invite to Alpha. Jen and I, one of our neighbors is named Ken. He lives across the street. He's a widower. He, in college, read almost everything written by C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist. And then he fought in the Vietnam War and he lost God. But we're going to invite him to Alpha. Bribing him with the food, if necessary. It's a widower. But praying that God will open. Be the word to him. How about you? Can you think of someone? And then, just in a brief, again, quiet prayer. Would you begin praying even today? The class starts in October, but would you pray for an opportunity, a divine appointment to invite them? Lord, hear our prayers. You received an invitation, right? Did you get one of these when you walked in? Is that a yes? All right. It's not yours. It's to give away. And there's more in the hub if you want. The word became flesh. God neighbored us. And to the degree that we know we've been neighbored, it's the degree we move towards our neighbor. Would you stand? Sing with me, huh? Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come and let us adore him. Christ the Lord. As we send you out, again, a blessing on all of those who've been baptized. Uh, remember, Danny Ortley's in the hub. Danny and Raina said to, to go stop by, talk to them, buy a CD, because those kids are now in college. We invite you to stay for lunch down in our activity center to the west entrance. Stop in. Our men's and women's ministry kickoff is today. Find out what's going on and how to get involved in men's ministry, women's ministry, and find friends there. If you ever wanted to try out our Saturday night service, next Saturday is the day because there's a barbecue after the service. So you can come to our Saturday night service. Finally, we had a family just recently visit our sister church down in Soranko, Uganda, uh, the, the Raffelli family. And we ask you to go to our missions area, look through their notebooks, see the, the videos of just how well our sister church in Uganda is doing and the compassion site that they visited there as well. Now, please receive the benediction. May we, the people of Waterstone, who have been so lovingly, richly neighbored, may we take that out with us today and give it away to everyone you bring in our path this week, that they too could find themselves being neighbored by the word made flesh. In his name and for his sake, amen. Go in peace.